0: Hello, I'm Ann O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a podcast recorded live at our May 2015 event, in which US writer Ken Orletta speaks with New Zealand Herald editor Shane Curry about the media revolution. This session is supported by Westpac Business Bank and Wealth. Ken Orletta has written the Annals of Communications pieces for The New Yorker since 1992 – profiling the leading figures and companies of the information age. He is the author of 11 books, five of which have been New York Times bestsellers, including Googled The End of the World as We Know It. We hope you enjoy this session. Welcome to the ASB Theatre, everybody, and thanks for coming out on a Saturday afternoon in Auckland for what promises to be, I think, one of the most interesting um, sessions of the festival. We have with us for the first time in New Zealand, Ken letter. One of the preeminent media commentators uh, from The New Yorker, but also a very a varied history and uh, background in media, uh, one of the big experts um, across all things that are being disrupted and changing in our media environment. And today we'll talk a lot about what's going on, not just in the globe, around the globe, but also uh, here in our own corner of the world. Uh, so we're in for a fascinating hour. Um, the format's pretty simple. Uh, we'll talk for probably. 40 minutes or so. Uh, have some questions and answers at the uh, end of the session. There's about four or five microphones on the floor, um, so please make yourself known when you do want to ask a question. Um, the Media Revolution is our, the title of our session, and uh, for the next hour, if you could please put your cell phones on silent. The Media Revolution <laughs> needs to be silenced for an hour um, so that we can um, talk in uh, relative peace. Um, I'd like to acknowledge and thank uh, Westpac Business and Bank Wealth for this particular session, but of course to all the sponsors of the festival for such an interesting range of guests that we've had. So, let's get started um, with Ken letter. Ken, it's a privilege to have you in New Zealand. Uh, Ken's career has spanned print, digital, books, television. Uh, in 1974, he became the chief political correspondent for the New York Post. And if any of you know the New York Post, it's an interesting tabloid newspaper, which um, before, Ken... <laughs>
1: before Murdoch.
0: <laughs> before Murdoch. And well, uh, Ken's had an interesting career with Murdoch, uh, as have we in New Zealand, as you all know. Uh, Ken's written the Annals of Communications column for The New Yorker since 1992, and the Columbia Journalism Review described Ken as America's uh, premier media cric- uh, cr- critic and commentator. They, qu- they say, No other reporter has covered the new communications revolution as thoroughly as has a letter. Ken's the author of 11 books, the most recent of which is Googled, The End of the World as We Know It. And Google will feature a lot in our discussions today. We're talking all things media, uh, all the disruptors, the digital leaders, television, print audiences, social and search. So I hope you enjoy the session. And Ken, I really wanted to start, first of all, with news that's relatively hot off the press, as much as it is hot off the press these days. And that's the big move that the New York Times has made with Facebook in the last two or three days where uh, the New York Times and a lot of other big um, mastheads are putting their content straight onto Facebook. Why are they doing it and what are the risks?
1: You know, the New York Times did a um, a report last year, last spring, um, and the report found that half of the readers of the New York Times online uh, come to the New York Times not through the homepage of the New York Times, but through social networks like Facebook. Facebook, 1.4 billion users, is an amazing uh, potential resource. So publications like the Times have said, we, we need to be cooperating and working with Facebook. Facebook comes back at them and says, yeah, but you know, you're very inefficient. To download the New York Times on your smartphone takes roughly eight seconds. If you let it all, if you let the New York Times come through the Facebook server, it'll be instantaneous. It'll be a much more efficient, much more pleasurable experience for the user. So the Times, like some other publications say, hey, you know, uh, 1.4 billion users, that's really pretty good. And Facebook says, you know, if you sell the ads, New York Times, you can get 100%. If we sell the ads, you get 70%. So that looks attractive. But at some point, what if Facebook then turns around and says, well, we're not going to give you 70%. We're going to give you 20%. And by the way, the user data, it's ours, not yours. So they're dealing
0: with what's called the friend enemy. Mm -hmm. A friend but also an enemy. So how much protection do you know has the New York Times put in place right now to avoid that kind of uh,
1: opportunity? Well, you know, the New York Times has done miraculously well in terms of its, its digital subscribers. They have 950,000 digital subscribers, uh, which is phenomenal, and it's been growing. Uh, so it's very, they're very excited about that. The problem is, and this is a problem for all newspapers in the digital realm, the New York Times grows tremendously fast digital subscribers. But the revenue they gain from those new digital subscribers does not match the revenue they lose from advertising for their print publication. So then you say, "Well, why don't they just do a print publication?" Well, that's where they make their money in the print publication. And and newspapers universally around the world have not yet cracked the answer to that question. How do we make money digitally?
0: Mm, so the percentage at the moment of the New York Times revenue coming from print is what approximately, do you know,
1: revenue? Mm. Oh, it's over 90%.
0: Right. So is this one way, is the New York Times, the forecast for, through this new Facebook deal, just how much extra revenue will they get from this particular deal? They, they,
1: they don't know. I mean, generally the answer to, to your broad question about, you know, whether digital and will it work is that everyone, every newspaper in the world that's trying digital, including yours, mm. um, is going to throw stuff up against the wall and see what sticks. And we don't yet know what sticks, but we do know this. So far, no one has come up with the answer of how to make a digital newspaper a financial success. Mm -hmm. If they did, they would drop the print newspaper. Mm -hmm. I mean, 60% of your costs, or probably more than 60% of your costs, are are paper, distribution, printing press. Um, And so if you could avoid that 60% cost and just do it all digitally, who wouldn't want to do that? But, you know, books have the same issue. You know, and their returns in books, which cost them a lot of money. But the problem becomes, uh, you know, can I make enough money, and w- digitally from e-books, let's say, or from my online newspaper, um, if I jettison my my print? Mm. And so far, the answer is no.
0: And one of the big issues that we find in New Zealand, and you may have observed it overseas as well, is that, uh, yeah. All of the revenue is coming into print at the moment, uh, and there's a big focus on our print journalism and ensuring that that is as focused as possible. But we also have to feed the beast. So the resources in the newsroom are suddenly separating out a lot. Well, not separating out, but the reporters are finding that they're having to be a lot more prolific, and that's taking them away from that investigative side of it. And so we're really trying to even the balance up a lot more. Have you noticed that? Also in the well, the other
1: thing that, that's worrisome... I mean, there are lots of wonderful things that the digital realm does for us journalistically, and we can talk about them. But one of the, one of the potential negative things it does is it allows the, the, the people with green eye eyeshades, uh, the business types, who count dollars and, and money, to see what people are reading or watching. And you'll find that they're not... You don't get a lot of traffic for political news. You don't get a lot of traffic for covering state capital or city hall or investigative reporting. Yeah. And, and yet that's what gives character to your newspaper and quality to your newspaper. So that's a worrisome thing
0: that, that the people with the green shades are going to say, no, no, let's have more Kim Kardashians. Mm. That's right. I mean, the biggest hit story at the Herald last week was um, The Bachelor now you know that gives us the uh, digital numbers but as you said it doesn't give us the journalistic strength that uh, we require in print Uh, in America last month when I visited there was a lot of car chases live car chases at the start of the local evening news and it seems to be a cheap and easy way to get the audience without getting into that journalistic powerhouse and strength of those subjects you were talking about
1: well I I think you know local television um, in the United States is embarrassing um and it, it, it's, it's – um, they generally have, have let go of serious reporting and don't do a lot of it, and uh, weather, uh, traffic, yeah. and, and anything sensational. And a lot of it's crime. Really, and what? A lot of crime. A lot of crime. But, but it's, it's basically – it's a carnival barker. They're basically saying, oh, my God, we're losing our audience. What can we do to get more people in our tent? And what they decide to do is shout louder which is what Accountable Barker does.
0: And we'll touch on TV shortly, but um, the local news then went into the CBS and NBC National News. How are the television, the the wider broadcasts going in terms of serious journalism? Is that still a powerhouse, considered a powerhouse in American journalism? Well,
1: the the three network evening newscasts, which in the United States are on at 6.30 at night, um, generally average about 25 million viewers. That's half what it was... 20 years ago, but still enormous audience. And when people say, well, Fox News, which is big in the States, the highest-rated show on Fox, gets, which is Bill O'Reilly, gets only 3 million viewers. So Network News has a big audience. The problem they have is the average age of the audience is about 61. And if you look at the ads, you can tell who the audience is. It's for dentures, you know, and hair replacement. You know, it, and so it's a real... It's a real problem. So the the revenues don't come in. And what they've done, they're desperate to get more female viewers. So you'll see a lot more medical news. You'll see a lot more, you know, uh, beauty news. um, And you'll see a lot less international news uh, on the networks than, say, you saw 15, 10 years ago. Mm.
0: Are we about to see, like we've had in the newspaper industry and, and digitally, are we about to see a tidal wave of disruption for the television industry around the world with netflix and Wait, it, it, it's interesting
1: um uh, tell if you look at the traditional media um newspapers have, have suffered dramatically because of digital competition uh, and disruption music has suffered dramatically magazines have suffered not as dramatically as newspapers but but nevertheless dramatically um and book publishers have 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 suffered um so they're making a nice profit margin from from e-books, right. um, and, but but print books is, is always you know the way print newspapers are a potential problem. Television has withstood the digital challenge better, and there's a good reason for it, at least in the United States. The first of all, it used to be back when I wrote a book called Three Blind Mice in '91. Um, I said that the networks were in trouble if they continue to rely on a single source of revenue, advertising. What happened since in the United States that has really shored them up are, are three things. One is in 92, they passed something called the Cable Act, which said that cable companies, which is where you get, you get your television over cable a uh, large part of it, or satellite. There are two satellite companies. That these companies had to pay, if they're going to run programs from the networks, they have to compensate them. Pay them something called retransmission consent. This year, the cable networks will pay in the United States about five billion dollars to the broadcasters. That's free money. The second thing that happened, there were there were rules called Fincin rules. The networks were not permitted to own a large percentage of the programs and not allowed to sell them, which is where you made the big bucks in syndication. The government in '94 passed. FinCEN legislation, allowing the networks to own programming and to sell them. So that became a huge source of profits for them. And the third change in the television business that has kept them thriving really, and they are thriving in the U.S., is is digital platforms. Netflix last year paid Fox and CBS each $250 million for their programs. That goes right to your bottom line. That's a revenue source you didn't have three years ago Mm -hmm. so that's phenomenal but it's not just netflix it's itunes on apple and it's amazon you know and 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 it's hulu and and it's it's other and it's game sony playstation and all those things become a source of revenue the question then just to finish up the television side going forward is this
0: you have a 14 year old you said right Mm -hmm. does that 14 year old watch advertising uh, she will watch um, Shortland Street at 7 o'clock to 7.30 and then she'll retire to the room to watch YouTube for the rest of the night. Okay. Um,
1: YouTube has no ads. Mm-hmm. She's not watching ads on YouTube. Netflix has no ads. HBO has no ads. And by the way, if you have cable in the United States, if you have a cable box, um, I rarely watch ads because I, I, fa- I, I record the, the program and then I fast forward through the ads. Oh. of the people, according to Nielsen Rating Service, 52% of the people who record a program on cable skip the ads. So the question then becomes in the future, will the disruption of television, the disruption we've seen in print and music, will we see it in television because Mm -hmm. advertising-supported television will die? So what cable is now doing, and I'll just finish with this point, cable is saying we have an answer to this. And the answer is as follows. We'll let you, just like Netflix, watch anything you want, anytime you want, on any device you want. And, and, and you can binge watch as much as you want. Isn't that great? And we say, yeah, I like that. And then they say, however, there's one catch. You can't skip the ads. Mm. Now, will people who are brought up, your 14-year-old, not to watch ads, will they tolerate that? And I suspect they won't. And if that happens, then the disruption we've seen in these other industries will see in television.
0: Sure. Uh, Let's turn to Google, the subject of your book in 1999, and it's been six years, which is a long time in Google years since the book was published.
1: 2009.
0: 2009, sorry. Um, Long time still in Google years. Um, Google created in 1998, still a phenomenal business. How has it survived so long? And what's changed in the six years since the book?
1: Well, I mean, they still have two-thirds of all the search business in the world is Google's. Um, and that's their goldmine. And and those ads on the right-hand side, there's unobtrusive ads, you see. The advertiser loves them because they don't, they're not charged for that ad unless someone actually clicks on the ad. And it's just a goldmine for, for Google. But Google has other things. I mean, I remember back when I was writing that book, Steve Ballmer was the CEO of, of Microsoft. And he would love to pronounce that, that Google was a one trick pony, and he says, "Just search well it wasn 't true then, and it 's not true, certainly not true now. They have Android basically seventy five percent of all the smartphones in the world are powered by google 's operating system Android, and Google gives it away for free in order to get that market share at some point, as we talked about what Facebook may do to newspapers, Google at some point can turn around and say, "Well, you know." pay us a little fee for your operating system. We won't charge you a lot. That's a source of revenue for them potentially. But another source of revenue, they already have from Android, which is Google is well positioned. Their search and, and Google Maps are well positioned on all smartphones because mm-hmm. that's part of the deal, that they get prominent placement on that. So that's a gold mine for them. YouTube, the largest network in the world is a gold mine making money for them. And then they're just throwing things up against the wall and seeing what sticks driverless cars, Google Glass. They're, they're just, you know, the network of things, the internet of things, I mean, appliances, et cetera. So they're a company with deep pockets and willing to make big bets. And so I think they remain a formidable.
0: You, you, you write extensively in the book about the importance of engineers running the company, and we've, we see that. Can, ex, can you explain just why that is and why that's so different to tri- traditional media companies?
1: Well, you know, one of, one of the great mistakes, uh, my book was not just about Google. It was also a book about what happened to traditional media and why they missed out. Um, I mean, 20 years ago, newspapers had online... Newspapers, But what did they do? They didn't, A, hire engineers. They said the editor of the newspaper is the editor of the online publication. They said that, that if a story runs in the newspaper, it couldn't run online until the next morning when it appeared in the newspaper. So in a 24-7 digital world, they were acting like an analog company. And the Googles come along and the others come along and just you know really disrupt their business in a major way. So they didn't have engineers. Uh, which they should have had uh, up front. But what I saw when I, in the two-and-a-half-plus years I spent out at Google, uh, I liken what I do to visiting other planets. And so I, I visited this planet, and, and one of the things I was really curious about were these engineers and how they think differently. And when an engineer, an engineer starts from a different assumption than most of the people we're used to dealing with in our uh, journalism world, they start from the assumption that the old ways of doing things are inefficient and ought to be disrupted. And they start from the assumption, another assumption, which is um, let us do something really different and that something that make it much more efficient. So they say, wouldn't it be much more efficient if, if you could read anything you wanted to read at any time? And if you took Ken Oletta's book, And took all his books, and why don't we just put them online for free? In fact, one of the hilarious experiences I had at Google, I I lived there for a long period of time, and I would go through the different Google projects to see it. And they, So one day, I was looking at Google Books. They were digitizing all the world's books. And they got into a lawsuit with publishers, uh, which they actually succumbed to, and they, they agreed to pay... $125 $125 million, which was a big deal. They basically said, we accept the notion that there is such a thing as copyright. We don't have a right to steal. <laughs> but, but, however, they wanted to show me how they digitize books. So I go into this room with, these, with the two engineers who are running Google Books, and they put up on the screen one of my books. And they said, isn't this great? Look at this. We can go through your whole book. And... and a reader can see anything they want. They can skip. They can go to the index. They can call up. They can print out. Whatever you want. And I'm sitting there trying to be very cool and not, and not showing how irate I was. You know? But, of course, as soon as I finished the meeting, I called my publishers. What the hell is going on here? Yeah, you know? yeah. and, but that's, their attitude is don't ask permission. Do it. And that's what they did. And then the publishers fought back with the Authors Guild. And they said, no, no, you need permission. A and B, you've got to pay or something. So now they've worked out, and it's still in the courts, and it's still not, not clear, but basically they've accepted the notion, and this is a really big deal in the, in the digital world for them to accept it. And by the way, Apple, if you think about it, digital companies are paying music and books and magazines and newspapers. They're paying them for when they take stuff from them or, or a lot of stuff, some stuff. Google search... If, if you do a search and a call up in New York Times, the New York Times is not getting anything from that. And there are some, Rupert Murdoch among them, who basically say, we want Google to be paying us for search. And they don't do that right
0: now, and I suspect they never will. Yeah, I think the boat has sailed on that one, hasn't it, in terms of um, the traditional media went way too slow yeah. in picking right. them up. AP, though, were an example who did take them on.
1: They took the them AP agency. on, and, and, you know, and, they, and they won that fight legally. But essentially, uh, newspapers have not won the fight Mm. to material. If you think about it, it, this is another thing that might have really stymied Google. Let's suppose that Google said when they started in 98, we're going to search all the world's movies and give you the movies for free the way we give you the search results for free. What would Hollywood have done? Mm. Hollywood would have killed them, would have crushed them. They wouldn't have tolerated that.
0: We in the newspaper world did tolerate it. And, and now it's hard to put that genie back in the bottle. That's right. Now, having said that, Google is facing a lot of legal um, um, cases, particularly in Europe. Uh, the antitrust case is on the horizon. The right to be forgotten issue from last year. And, and it, that has the threat, doesn't it, of bec- becoming very cumbersome on Google, which is kind of an agile, versatile company. I read in, in the Wall Street Journal yesterday that Google executives are literally having to sit down around a table in Europe every week now to decide which of the pieces should be removed from the website under the right-to-be-forgotten lawsuit.
1: Yeah, I I don't get the right-to-be-forgotten. I I find that really scary, actually. I mean, uh, you know, rich people or people who have criminal records can can seek to expunge their history. Um, That that really I find very troubling. Um, But, you know, one of the... the, um, the, one of the problems with engineers, and this is another thing I, I did discover watching the engineer, the virtue of an engineer we, I, I, I think I touched on, which is the, you know, they, they are bold, they, they don't ask permission, they just think about out of the box how to do things differently. Uh, the weakness of an engineer, however, is an engineer is good at, at things that he or she can measure. They're not good at things they can't measure. What can't they measure? They can't measure fear. Like fear of monopoly, they can't measure why you should fear government, which may bring lawsuits against them, as you've cited some. Um, so they're 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 really um, they're not instinctual. These are people who spend too much time not talking to other human beings but looking at computer screens, <laughs> and that's a it's a it's a vice, and and that's why they get they've gotten in a lot of trouble, and and now they're trying to catch up, and they go and hire lobbyists, which they didn't do at first, and they become more politically sensitive by bringing on people who are politically sensitive to try and deal with the European Union and other governments. I mean, look what happened in China. I mean, they very idealistically, in my judgment, went in there and said, don't be evil, we're gonna provide, we're gonna, all the world's information should be free. And that's a wonderful concept. And all of it, it should be available to everyone. But the Chinese government, like the Iranian government, like the Russian government, says, oh, wait a second. We don't want our citizens to have access to all of your
0: information. So either censor it or you can't be here. So they're not there. No. Um, it, it's interesting how the attitudes changed though, in Google once um, Larry Page and Sergey Brin stepped aside for Eric Schmidt to come in. Um, how did the company change in terms of its? Was it still an engineer? Obviously, still an engineer-led company. But it seemed to me that Schmidt brought in some discipline to the company almost and controlled the two founders in a way that others couldn't.
1: Well, he, he, didn't, he didn't control them in the sense that if they felt passionately about something, uh, and as he acknowledged to me, I spent a lot of time with Schmidt doing that, that book, uh, he would back off. Of course, he thought they were geniuses and, and, and they're really extraordinarily smart, able, passionate people. But they knew they were limited in, in their ability to manage an, a growing enterprise. Um, and so they deferred at, uh, back. What happened was that the venture capitalists who have, in the early days of all these digital companies, have enormous sway. And so they went in 2001 and they said to Page and Bryn, Larry Page, you're the CEO, right? But you don't know anything about being a CEO and you're not making any money. 2001 they had zero income, right? Zero revenue, by the way. And so you need to bring in a professional manager So they went and they interviewed A number of people and they had no interest In bringing in a professional manager And they like. Then they saw Steve Jobs And they said we want him to be The CEO and Steve Jobs wasn't interested In being their CEO and, But they couldn't agree and finally they brought in Eric Schmidt and when they found out That Eric Schmidt had gone to Burning Man Which they thought was a kind of a cool thing to do You know in the Utah desert They, they said alright we'll go with Schmidt And Schmidt from 2001 to, you know, up until just a couple of years ago, was the CEO, mm-hmm. and he obviously was a very successful CEO. Uh, they all met, the three of them, and, and, and it was really a vote. And if Larry and Page and Sergey Brin wanted something and they felt strongly, it would overrule um, Schmidt, and he would do it willingly, except that they were the founders. And then at some point, Larry Page said, all right, I'm ready to be
0: CEO, which he is. And Schmidt now is what? He's like
1: executive chairman, and he deals a lot with governments. Um, to the Obama administration, water. trying to smooth it. But, you know, he thought he had succeeded in, in Europe, and he hadn't. And they bring an antitrust case. And he succeeded in killing an antitrust case in the U.S. But in Europe, they basically said that Google, which has acquired other companies, and they say what Google has done is, is in their search they favor their own companies that rank higher in the search results, and that's Mm,
0: anti-monopoly. Is the Google uh, algorithm now um, in Strife. There's a lot of companies that are set up for reputation management and a lot of companies who can get around and get their search results on that critical first page. Is that a threat to Google in terms of people trying to beat the system? Or?
1: Well, what they do, and, and they've disrupted a lot of comp- digital companies by doing this, they change the algorithm. When they think you're gaming the system for y- in favor of your company, they will change the algorithm. And, and, and often many companies, Yelp, for instance, has argued that they've been hurt tremendously because Google changed the algorithm, and Yelp claims that they changed it because they're a competitor of Yelps. Uh, But there are others, they've changed it because they thought the system was gamed. And then they do another thing with the algorithms, which is very secretive. No one knows what the algorithm is outside of Google. What they do, in order to try and help, for instance, some newspapers like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, more serious newspapers, you'll find in a search result that often those serious newspapers rank higher in the search results. They give extra credit to those newspapers in the algorithm. They tweak the algorithm. To, so the New York Times will rank higher because they think it's more, it's, it's more reliable news. Right,
0: right. So for you, in your view, what's Google's next biggest threat? Where will that, that company be in 10 years? Is Facebook now fast on the horizon, cutting in on some of Google's? Well, I, I actually
1: think Facebook is the biggest threat. Um, it, you know, just to go back, in 1998, I was interviewing Bill Gates in his office and, and Gates, like a lot of engineers, is, is, um, is not very social. Um, that is to say, he has a refrigerator behind him and he reaches back and, and pulls a, a Diet Coke out, but doesn't think, it's just he and I in the office, and I had interviewed him a number of times before, doesn't think to offer me one, I was really <laughs> thirsty. And, and, but I said to him, I said, Mr. Gates, I said, in the future, what is the biggest worry you have at Microsoft? What's the competitor you most worry about? And I thought he would say something like Netscape, which at the time was a browser that ultimately led to an antitrust trial that Microsoft lost because they tried to kill Netscape. Or I thought he would say Oracle or Apple or some some other uh, prominent firm. And he didn't. He, he actually, he's very thoughtful. He said, I'll tell you, Ken, what I worry about. I worry about some guy in a garage inventing something I never thought of. Well, in 98, there were two guys in a garage, Brennan and, and Page, and they invented Google, which became very disruptive to Microsoft. So when you ask the question, what might Google worry about, they worry about someone in a garage inventing some new search result or, or some other, uh, something that will attack one of their other businesses, be it YouTube or Android. But when I think about current companies that are in existence today that are pose a real threat to, to Google, I would say Facebook. And I would say it for the following reason. Not just because Facebook has 1.4 billion users in the world. Not because they're growing faster than Google. Not just because they have really cracked mobile. And, and it's very hard to advertise on mobile. And Facebook has done a good job and has real revenues coming if a mobile. And the reason it's so hard is that a a, a mobile ad feels much more like an interruption. Uh, Think about Mm. it. You know, We interrupt what you're reading to bring you this ad. I mean, it's really annoying. But Facebook has done a good job with rich media ads on that. Uh, But the real reason I think they're a threat to Google in search is that it's much more effective. If I want to go to a restaurant uh, and I'm in Auckland, it's much more effective if I could... Email or instant message my friends and say who <laughs> I know and who I trust and who and in fact the friends that I know are foodies. Uh, where should I where should I eat? Mm-hmm. Then if I do a search for restaurants, so it, it becomes what's called a vertical search rather than a horizontal search. Yeah. It becomes much more targeted yeah. and 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 that's a real danger. Yeah. There was a point where Google was worried about vertical search. I mean, companies that would do. Um, and you could argue the New York Times 20 years ago should have. They have food reviewers. They have you know, theater reviewers, movie reviewers. They should have done... They should have been Google, with a vertical search. The, mm. these, you know, you want restaurants? These are the ones we reviewed, et cetera. They didn't do that. But they worried at, at one point that someone would come up with a way to, to do a vertical search. But it's very expensive. and And it's not for Facebook very expensive. Mm. So I would... Mm. I know they're worried about Facebook. Facebook and Google are at at each other. I mean, all of these companies both
0: cooperate and compete. Um, But uh, there's no cooperation with Facebook and and Google. I guess the big issue, one of the biggest issues facing both of those companies is privacy and what they know about us. Do you sense that uh, the public now is a lot more concerned about what they do know? and what they're trying to find out?
1: Yeah, I, I think they are. And, and and this is another weakness of the engineer. An engineer, uh, to an engineer, data is virtuous because data is something you can massage and you can learn so much more, the secrets of what your users want, what, they, what where they spend their time, um, which will be valuable for advertisers, but valuable for engineers in designing software programs uh, to, to better treat, viewers and users to what they want. And so they want as much information they can get. And again, they're not good at anticipating people's fears. Why should you fear your privacy? Mark Zuckerberg has said many times over the years, I want all the information. I want to share everything. Well, people don't want to share everything. And, and, and at some point, it becomes, does the Snowden thing kick off more fears of privacy? It, it certainly has. How serious that will be over a period of time is a question because there are trade-offs here. I mean, for instance, when I go to Amazon, or we all of us use Amazon, and you buy a book and they say, Ken, uh, those who bought this book have also liked these 20 other books. I actually like that service. On the other hand, they know a lot about me to give mm. me that
0: offering. Mm. And at some point, do, do we say hey, too much? Yeah question and how soon do you think that point is it seems to me that it's fast approaching in many countries
1: i don't know um i mean i think it's certainly it's it's privacy fears have been exacerbated over the last two years and it's much more of a prominent issue today than it was say two years ago will it continue to grow as an issue i don't know Mm -hmm. it should
0: You've met Larry Page, obviously, and Sergey Brin and Eric Smith. you spent a lot of time with him. But also over your career, you've spent a lot of time with the likes of Ted Turner, uh, Bill Gates, and not so much time with Murdoch. Oh, no, I, have,
1: <laughs> I did actually spend a lot of time with tell, Murdoch. Tell us
0: about your relationship yeah. with Murdoch and why it's not as rosy as Why he now. doesn't speak to me? <laughs> yeah.
1: um, I'm proud to say. Um, I had... Um, Back in 1977, I, I worked for New York Magazine and the, and the Village Voice, and Murdoch did a hostile takeover of, of both those publications. And a number of us went on strike and said we wouldn't work for him. And when he succeeded, we quit. So I had a history with him, and, and he and I had confrontation at the time. Um, and But then when I started covering the media for for. for the New Yorker. Actually, I did a a book called Three Blind Mice* on Television Networks and he was just starting Fox Network then. So I interviewed him then for the book. Kind of wary relationship, but you know, I wasn't, he wasn't the center of of my focus. And then when I took over writing about the media for the New Yorker in 92, I went out and and interviewed, I I took five months off to just go interview people in the media world without writing anything just to get a sense of where things were going and stuff and, and the New Yorker, uh, bless them, allow me to do that and among the 80 or 90 people I interviewed uh, on what's called a background basis I could take notes but I couldn't quote them by name because I was basically just filling up my, my brain with information uh, was Murdoch and I tried over the next three years to get him to allow me to profile him and he always said no I I have more control of my ego than that. And then in 95, he agreed to allow me to profile him. And I basically was a fly on the wall in his office for 10 days. We had dinner seven out of 10 nights in New York and LA. Um, And we did 20 some odd hours of recorded interviews, uh, tape recorded interviews. So we spent more time than he had ever spent with a reporter and the piece appeared five months later, it was 20,000 words, and it was called The Pirate. And he wasn't happy. I mean, I, <laughs> and he has never agreed to be interviewed by me since. So every time I do any any piece, I mean, I talk to his spokesperson, or but he, he doesn't.
0: Was he in there as well? I think that Elizabeth had spoken to you on another project. Yeah, I I did
1: a profile of of, um, last year of his daughter Elizabeth, who's quite a formidable woman um, and very successful television executive who left his employ and felt that she as a she was treated not the same as the he of the two sons were treated. And when the hacking scandal broke, which Nick Davies, who who I'm sure you've you've seen here, did this brilliant Woodward and Bernstein-like reporting, only he's one person, uh, and he broke the hacking scandal. Um, She, at some point, gave a speech in Edinburgh in which she denounced, um, after telling her father privately, that he should take more forceful action against the people responsible for the hacking. She actually said it in, in a public speech. And then she agreed to allow me to profile her and her then husband, Matthew Freud. And in the interview, uh, the interviews we did, she was very critical of both her father in the hacking scandal and, and her brother James for not better policing the hacking scandal. And the father was just enraged that she, you know, aired family dirty laundry mm. to someone he particularly didn't like anyway. So.
0: Who, who do you think will take over from Murdoch? Which are the family or
1: outsiders? Oh, not outsiders. I mean, I, I think his... I, my, uh, he wants it to be a family. He's always said that publicly. Mm-hmm. A family-run company. Um, my own guess, and I could be wrong about this, is by splitting the company in two, a uh, mostly print-side uh, news corp and a mostly television-side 21st Century Fox. He's got James who would naturally run the television side, I would think. And Lachlan, who's back in the fold. He had left at some point. Lives in Australia, but he's on the board of News Corp. And he's, he comes back and forth to the States a lot more now. And, but he, I could envision him running the News Corp side. Where that leaves, Elizabeth, whose father, her father bought her company for $600 million, her television company. But There's no evidence that she's involved in the company at all, and she turned down a year ago an opportunity to be on the board.
0: Mm -hmm. Another big name that has come into newspapers in recent years is Jeff Bezos uh, with The Washington Post. What has he done? What's he trying to achieve? Was it a surprise to you as it was to many of us that a man like him would come back into a traditional media space?
1: It was, and and my suspicion is that Bezos basically... It it cost him $250 million, which is pennies for Jeff Bezos, to buy the Washington Post. And I think he is a very, he's intellectually curious. And I think what intrigues him is the idea, can I, I don't think he bought the Washington Post to have political influence in in the Capitol. He spends no time there. He's not changed the editorial policy of the Washington Post at all. I think it's a petri dish for him can I figure out a way to make a go of, of newspapers digitally? And I think you're going to see more of the Kindle will be a device where if you have a Kindle, you get a Washington <coughs> Post. And, and and I think he's going to do things like that to, to throw stuff up against the wall, see what sticks, and use his very real digital brain to try and figure out how to make a go of it. And if he doesn't, it's not... A big loss, and it's, uh, it's um, but he's saving, uh, uh, right now at least, a vital newspaper, which is actually expanding. They've added people to the newsroom, uh, which is very rare in the, in the journalistic world.
0: Sure, and he's, yeah, as you say, putting resources into journalism. What about someone like Warren Buffett? Is he in it for journalism, or is he in it for the buck at the end of the day? He seems to be a different personality entirely.
1: Yeah, I think he's in it for real estate and money. I mean, uh, Warren Buffett is not, um, uh, he could have bought the Washington Post, he's on the board, uh, very close to the grand family that owned it, he chose not to. I I don't think he's, I don't think he's, uh, I I don't think he has bad journalistic genes the way Rupert Murdoch does. Um, And his papers are respectable, but they're monopolies and they make a reasonable profit in, in relatively small cities. Uh, will he be in the business? Will his company be in the business in 10 years? I, I would doubt it.
0: Right. Uh, Ted Turner? You wrote Ted a Turner. fascinating book on him. Uh, tell us about him and how you found him and his personality.
1: Ted Turner is, is actually one of the more intriguing characters I, I've covered. You, um, let, let me tell you a Ted Turner story, how he began. He, he went to Brown University. And he was a, he, a failure there. And his father was very disappointed. His father had a very big um, outdoor advertising business. And his father, um, they were at breakfast. His father was very brutal to Ted. Ted was 24 years old. And, and his father went upstairs from the breakfast table. And Ted and his mother were sitting at the breakfast table and they heard a gunshot. They ran upstairs. The father put a bullet in his, in his mouth and, and pulled the trigger. <laughs> Uh, of gun, committed suicide, and he left a, a suicide note which basically said to his best friend, He said, I want you to sell the company because my son Ted is not capable of running this company. And think about the shock of that. So Ted Turner convinced the friend not to sell the company and went out and built a television empire, a cable television empire. Superstation, uh, CNN, uh, and TNT, and and all these. And I'm I'm walking down the street one day with Ted Turner, who was this intriguing character, Um, and he was holding the cover of a magazine that he was on. And he held up the magazine to the sky, and he said, Okay, Dad, is this enough for you? (laughs) So uh, he was bruised. and, And... but he, he proved to his father his worth, and if you went to Ted Turner's office, which was almost the size of this auditorium, and 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 you needed a taxicab to go from one end to the other, but he had it was nothing there was no art on the walls, it was just magazine covers. Ted Turner magazine covers. <laughs> but it was a totally intriguing guy who, who my favorite interview in doing Ted Turner was was Jane Fonda. And the reason was that I was so surprised how smart and insightful she was. She had just divorced Ted. And she divorced him, as she said to me, because I was tired of being a babysitter. He constantly wouldn't stay in any city more than three days. And he, had, he owned uh, property in 19 states and several South American countries. And he had a private plane, and he wanted to jump to all of them. And she said, I'm tired. I'm 70 <laughs> years old. I don't want to do this anymore. But she still was in love with him. He still was in love with her. And one day, I, I meet him in Atlanta in his office. We, we had spent a fair amount of time together. And Ted, was, his mustache was, you know, he at one point looked like Clark Gable, but now he didn't. When I would see him, his suits were bulging and his, his mustache was untrimmed and his hair was unwashed. And this morning when I saw him, he had a trim mustache. He had on a charcoal sport jacket. His hair was washed and silver gray. And I said, "What happened to you, Turner? You look good. What, why do you?" He said, "I had lunch with Jane."
0: <laughs> <laughs> very sweet. A true love story. Cool. Thank you, and thank you everybody. Ken, thank you very much. That's been a fascinating okay. hour. We've touched on a lot of topics. We could have gone for another hour uh, for topics that we haven't even touched on. Uh, But it's been, as I say, a fascinating hour. Thank you for that. Uh, Coming from a traditional media perspective, absolutely, Uh, in this country, a lot more of us are in that uh, lean forward perspective, um, looking for the new business model that will sustain our journalism and our content. Um, So thank you for that. Uh, And Ken will be outside signing copies of the book uh, once this session has finished. Uh, So please make yourself known to him. Thank you. I hope you have enjoyed listening to this podcast from the 2015 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other talks, interviews, and discussions on iTunes or on our website writersfestival.co.nz.